I think I mem- remember when I was maybe 13 or 14 thinking, looking at the kids who are really bright and hardworking and end up going to Oxford and Cambridge, that life is not just about getting the marks. You've got to grow in other ways, and that's growing socially, it's growing in it with your communication skills, storytelling, and that, that's where I suppose... I formulated my belief that storytelling, stories, are what makes the world go round. Hi, I'm Matt Barbet, and this is What We Talk About When We Talk About Talk, a new podcast on all things oracy from School 21. Both just had quite a lot of cake. Yes, we're worried they would made our voices like cloggy. So yeah, we should story. have done some sort of vocal warm up, really, shouldn't yeah. we? Yeah, we've never done one, but perhaps that would make a difference. I mean, I did say on a previous recording that I mean, I feel very much like an amateur. I think that's clear to everyone. I'm, I'm just attempting to live into that amateur role. Uh, okay, exciting. We can re- we can reveal. We're sort of not fully pulling back the curtain. Job roll. Yeah, so it's like a half little drum roll, slightly pulling back the curtain, but then swiftly pulling back. We'll give you a bit of an insight into what's going on with the Great Odyssey exhibition. The day is going to start with three assemblies, and it's going to end with three uh, panel discussions, um, which are, we've got some really exciting guests coming in to speak. Um, but as a guide, uh, we can we can tell you what the themes, what those three themes are going to be. So it's going to be framed around Odyssey and self. So what does my voice say about me and my, ident- my identity? How does Oracy shape me and how can it help me understand myself? Then you have Oracy and school. So what does a school sound like in the future? And how does Oracy help build a culture in, in present schools and for future schools? And then Oracy and society. So how can we, uh, how can we use Oracy in the classroom to actually affect national and global discourse and hear from some unheard voices. It's exciting, yeah? It sounds really good. It's three really, really strong areas to explore. So that's that's a kind of guide of what you'll get on the day. Um, today, in this podcast, I went and spoke to Matt Barbet, who was an ex-newsreader. He was a newsreader for like a decade, worked on various things like GMTV. And now he works as head of communication at a company called Freud's. It was a really cool place to visit, um, and he had a lot of really good things to say. So, let's have a listen. What would be your advice to a novice? In terms of what? Interviewing. In terms of interviewing, the, the, the best interviewers and the best interviews involve listening. But I find the best interviews I've done work much more like a conversation. You know, there's toing and froing. I would always try and pick up on what someone has said, not just say, okay, that's the answer. Next question, completely unrelated. Yeah. You think about how conversation mm. flows and what kind of surprises conversations can throw up, and that's really what I would be after in an interview. Often I take the view with interviewing and just life in general, that if you know there's a safety net there, you'll use it. You're talking of this sort of purely reactive conversational interview. So to a degree. What- what is the preparation and how are you conscious of sort of controlling a narrative or guiding a narrative? Well, that's what I was about to say. You know, loosely speaking, the, the template is the same. 
in that there's preparation. So you need to know who you're talking to and what you're talking about. You need to be conscious, or in my opinion, all the time of who the audience is to tailor the discussion, the interview points to them. Otherwise, if there's no one watching, what's the point? No one listening, who cares? I'll give you an example. I interviewed a cyclist, I work a bit, a bit in cycling, who used to be a man and is now a woman and hadn't spoken publicly about the transition before and was very well known as a male racing cyclist. Now, you can imagine that she was ever so slightly anxious about yeah. being on stage with someone that she didn't know talking about something incredibly personal, transitioning. So I took the time with her to sit down for a half an hour before and we were doing a half an hour on stage at so exactly the same amount of time just to talk about what she was comfortable with. I wasn't trying to get a scoop. I wasn't trying to get the inside track. I wasn't mm. trying to trip her up. What I was keen to do was find out her story in, from her personal point of view. So making her feel comfortable about that, trusting me so I, she knew I wouldn't go places she was not comfortable with, came, meant we had a really good discussion on stage she was confident and comfortable. I wasn't going to start you know, nosing around for intimate personal detail. I wouldn't take the same approach as the politician. I feel it's hiding something from me, and that happens. Yeah. On the contrary, I would never talk to politicians before interviewing them because they should be prepared anyway. They, it's their job to know what I'm going to ask or anticipate what I'm going to ask, and it becomes much more combative. Um, on a couple of occasions, you want to you want to make the audience see how this politician is not telling the truth to you. I, it's my job to put it bluntly, give them enough rope to hang themselves with. So the thread seems to me empathy in that individual em empathy mm. in terms of who you're speaking to, but also a wider empathy to the audience and the listenership. Because that's interesting, because that links with this social or emotional strand yeah. of oracy. There's taking account the level of understanding of the audience, yeah. uh, you know, listening actively, responding appropriately. My question is, how do you train or teach empathy? I, that, now, that's a really, really good question. I think empathy is hugely important. Um, and I think it shows an emotional understanding of other people. And that's probably the, that's probably the, the de dictionary definition yeah. of empathy. I, I, when I've done interviews, on TV in particular, I'm almost simultaneously thinking about what I find interesting and would the audience find this interesting. So empathising with the audience. Depending on the interviewee, I'm trying to empathise with their plight as well. I think you can learn it to a degree, but I think you have to be open to learning about how important the importance of empathy. I think people are not necessarily born a certain way. I don't think people's path through life is set in stone. So I don't think people are born maybe more empathetic than others. I think their experiences of life are what shapes that more. So does that mean it's something that can be learned? It probably is. Perhaps it's more that the, what can be learned is reflection. And the reflection can produce empathy. Yeah, I think, yes. I think, you know, I'm married to a psychologist, so we talk about the effects of behaviour, the, the effects of stimuli on someone's behaviour over and above the chemicals within us, the way our genetics are affecting our behaviour. I, I, I firmly believe that we are more a product of our 
environment than we are, you know, our, our birth. Okay, so with that in mind, I think that if you are nurtured in an empathetic environment, you will appreciate empathy, and you will then, in turn, become more empathetic. Um, it's something I try to, I suppose, I'm thinking about it now, teach my, my daughters. Yeah. Not explicitly, but understanding, well, how, how would someone else feel if you did that? You know, let's, let's think about it for a second. How would you feel if they did that to you? Putting that, them in someone else's shoes, I think, is, is a really important skill to have. So, I guess in summary, it, I think it is something you can learn. It's something, that is quite something explicit. you can work on. That is quite yeah. explicit, I think. Yeah, it is, but I... I you know, analyzing it now, it seems explicit, but I don't think about it in those terms when no. I'm doing it, and that's what I mean. It becomes a so you're saying it's an environmental thing. Oh. So the two kind of big environments when you grow up are home and school, I yeah. guess. So I suppose like from the family home, it can be more of a subconscious thing, but maybe the argument being that school environment can be more explicit about nurturing an environment for empathy. Absolutely, and I think schools to speak generally, have made huge improvements in that area since I was at school. I went to school in North Wales, I went to a comprehensive school um, of about 1,500 people, and it was on a campus with a Welsh, I was in an English-speaking school, it was on a campus with a Welsh-speaking school that had another 800 pupils in it. Whereabouts was this? It was in a town called Mould, which is as nice as it sounds. Um, (laughs) (laughs) One question looms heavy is yeah. that where is your Welsh accent <laughs> yeah well where's yours <laughs> yeah I wasn't brought up in Wales okay. I was brought up in London I was born and raised in London well I've been in London for um, nearly 20 years I'm married to a Londoner um, but my mum and dad my dad was from Chester my mum is from Kent from Dartford really so she's from Greater London uh, my accent's always been fairly say generic I mean if, you, if I talk to southerners they think I sound probably vaguely northern I might say bath I might say grass okay, sometimes yeah. you know I might slightly aspirate my s's which is a, you know, a bit kind of a Liverpudlian affectation I suppose but you know even though I grew up in Wales I was only 20 miles on the English border Yeah. and actually if you go to that part of north east Wales most people sound to outsiders like they're slightly Liverpudlian sounding anyway especially if they're in, not Welsh speakers and so when I go home, I sound slightly more northwest, slightly, you know, like I say, aspirate my S's and T's, you know, say bath instead of bath. It just comes back. And, you know, it, it, what was interesting is that I studied all this at university because I did language and communication studies at university. Yeah, yeah. And a big part of that was accommodation theory, which is when you meet someone that you want to get to like, you accommodate them by even subconsciously just changing the way you talk and your accent and. What's it like, say the word again? Combination. Uh, accommodation. Accommodation. Accommodate. You want to accommodate the yeah, person yeah, yeah. you're talking to. And you do it by vocabulary, by maybe a slightly assuming their accent slightly or to a, you know, to a larger degree. You totally do that physically as well, right? Yeah, you do. Well, you know, I suppose, you know, I'm conscious of body language. You know, your body language right now, you're facing me, your your legs are crossed towards me or they could be crossed away from me. You're... you're your upper body is is open. You know, I've got your arms crossed or folded like this. Uh, most I mean, most people, when it's pointed out, realise the difference in closed and open body language. I mean, it's arms crossing really, mm. and it's it's eye contact, and those things are important. We we teach people here, uh, clients who come in, how much 
how how different non-verbal and verbal communication is and actually non-verbal is huge in comparison what about yeah. the diversity of voices across the media and particularly news I think it's really important I uh, but I also think that um, what people hear and see is not the whole story when it comes to individuals I think of, of course there should be on broadcasters like the BBC a wide variety of accents and ways of talking and people doing the talking because it should be representative of the country it's serving, the audience it's serving. Now, the obvious one is for instance, Hugh Edwards with a Welsh accent and Hugh is a Welsh speaker um, and he's very proud of that and know him pretty well. Um, fantastic. But are there enough other accents? Where are the, where are the Liverpudlians on yeah. television? Where are the Brummies? People react to those accents in different ways. You, know, you look at some of the research, and you, you only have to call up a call centre to know where where people think, which accents people think are warm and friendly. South Wales and the North East, Geordies, mm. warm and friendly. Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll talk to them about my gas bill. Yeah. It's easy. Yeah. Um, whereas Brummies, you know, stereotypically considered not as intelligent. West Country, same. Um, North Walian or Scouse, a bit harsh. But they should all be represented, and those pre- those stereotypes and prejudices should be dealt with by having more voices, not fewer. So that's one thing. But the flip side to that is people make a lot of assumptions based on the way people talk and the accents they have that quite often can be wrong. You're asking me about my accent. I think and I have I don't speak with received pronunciation, but I have a fairly generic. Middle England accent, I suppose, but it does change depending on who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to my brother, it's much more like it was when I was growing up. But when I started broadcasting, reading the news on radio, I, ha- I had actually had voice coaching, not to change my accent, but just to make what I was saying a bit clearer. In fact, I remember the voice coach saying, "I have a lazy tongue," which was a bit, yeah. a bit of a shock. And she gave me—I didn't know what she meant. She gave me some exercises, basically warming up your vocal apparatus to speak more clearly, not garble. I garbled before when you said, "What, what combination?" Theory? No, accommodation. Theory. I wasn't—I didn't say it particularly clearly because I do have a tendency to talk um, quickly. But I, yeah, I think it's important that people don't judge just on voice. I, all the time people think I'm a public school boy because of the way I carry myself and the way I talk and actually I went to a very very bog standard comprehensive that had kids who went to prison and kids who went to Oxbridge and, and everyone in between I was in, I, I was in the in between um, I, may, maybe I've assumed this way of talking as a way to get on I don't think so um, or maybe it's just a mark of the people I spend my time with these days and the friends I have and, the, and, the, and where I live it's environment isn't it but yeah. well, you, there must be some level of consciousness about the way you talk to fit the, con- the professional context. Yeah, it's clarity. It's not, it's not accent, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does change depending on the audience. My, the way I deliver a script or a story or a message is different if I'm doing a show on TV about cycling as opposed to talking about... Grenfell Tower on the, on a news programme, which I have done both of those, it changes. Now, not radically, but it just shows an empathy with the audience. It's back to that point again. If I'm delivering some, some difficult, miserable news, which I don't really do anymore, I've left that world last year, but I did for a long time prior to that, 
if I'm doing that, the pace changes, the, the look on my face changes. I'm not going to do it with a smile on my face, of course not. And and actually, this is another thing people perhaps don't realise is you sound different depending on your on your expression. Even on radio, you can hear if people are smiling. Yeah. You can't see their faces. But if someone's delivering a happy message, even on radio, you'd say, you should smile when you're doing it because it changes your delivery. The, 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 the opposite is true. If you're delivering a message that's miserable, you know, thousands of people have died, hundreds of people have died in, in, a, in a disaster or a war or something, then the look on your face is solemn. The voice changes accordingly it doesn't mean it's not sing-song the intonation might be flattened slightly it's much more sober clear perhaps slower delivery these things are like a feedback loop you behave this way you sound this way you sound this way you behave this way yeah are these all micro decisions you're making in the moment it beforehand is there a level of conscious thinking about your kind of physicality of voice and body language or no. is it upon reflection no, it's, on, it's upon reflection. It, it, um, what leads to that is probably years of experience of doing it and telling messages in a different way. But you were trained, though. There's an element of training, right? Well, an element of self-awareness, a big part of self-awareness, and then also being able to take criticism constructively from, from superiors. So I, there are several people in my broadcasting career who have been real mentors to me and have become friends. And one of them was an editor I worked with Two, in fact, there were two editors I worked with. One at Radio One Newsbeat, who was all about the audience, because if you work in radio on a music station and your job is to deliver the news, most people listening just want to hear the music. On Radio One, they just want to hear the music. So you have to work pretty damn hard to take 15 minutes of their time to do a news programme. And so that, that eye for detail is so important in terms of how you write the stories how long they are, the language you use, the stories you choose, the pace in which you tell them, everything. All, all the details are scrutinised. The same when I worked in TV for Channel 5 News. My first editor there, a man called David Kermode, who's a really good friend of mine now, gave robust criticism. And some people fell foul of that. They couldn't take it. They thought it was personal. I just took it on board. And... and, um, and absorbed it someone said to me the other day constructive criticism is like a wedding present you either throw it away or you use it for life but either way you've got to accept it graciously do you know what if, if this takes off with school children and it, and it absolutely should then it's going to do me out of a job hopefully I'll be retired by the time they all, they all come of age um, I think, though, I think training in this kind of thing or awareness of the importance of what is basically vocal delivery, conversation, interviewing, all the, the things that we all, we all do to a certain degree without thinking about, but the awareness of what, how we do it is, re- is so important. And actually, when you, when you come to talk about it and dwell on it and deconstruct it and look at the detail of it you realise that the vast majority of people never even get past the first stage of doing that the adults, children, whoever most people don't consider how they're coming across when they're trying to tell a story or 
deliver a message or whatever, tell, say something. They're not thinking about it at all. And you know, we're looking at a screen here with a framework on it which has got how many different sort of 10, 11 parts to it. And it's all so important. These, these, these are building blocks for so many other things in your life. How do you learn or how do you choose the, what words to say at the right time? Practice. It's simply practice. It, it's, 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 it's wanting to do it. Yeah. One of the big, I think one of the biggest hurdles people have in speaking in public, whether it's to a room of people or an audience on a stage or broadcasting, is you have to embrace it. If you're going to do it, decide you want to do it. Decide you're going to do it. That's the, that's the first and the biggest hurdle you have to, have to get over. So if you want to do it, everything will fall in behind that. The rest of it is doing it again and again and again. And it's also becoming aware of, I've come back to this again, the audience. So speaking in Afghanistan, I was there, I was there for three weeks, embedded in 2009, you're hyper aware of what the stories you are telling you're also censored as a journalist to a degree when you're embedded with the army. They used to have this thing called Operation Minimize. Now that was a basically a code for someone's been killed. Something's happened. Operation Minimize would go into action. And what it meant was none of the soldiers could phone home at that point. Um, none of the journalists were... Well, we were required not to report on explosions or deaths until they had let the family know. Operation they so what they were minimizing was communications. Right. So that that censorship really, because as a journalist you hear about something happening, you want to find out exactly what the truth is and share it as quickly as possible with your audience. When you're embedded, you're kind of in you've done a deal with the army, they're gonna protect you and in return you're going to play by their rules in terms of communicating. So that's just one one part of understanding why you're there, what you're doing, the audience you're serving, Operation Minimize, you, you would play by those rules. Otherwise, they'd have booted us out, and we couldn't, you couldn't operate in Afghanistan at the time without the support of the army. You'd last about five minutes before you'd be shot dead. Yeah. So a lot of it was to do with just being conscious all the time of the reason you're there and the stories you're trying to tell. Uh, and, you know, I think... The word agenda is not a dirty word. I think journalists quite often have an agenda and it can be a positive one. So again, when I went to Afghanistan, actually the agenda was not to go looking for gunfights and, and fighting. It was to go and look at some of the what we call human stories around Helmand province. It was the investment that the British government was putting in in other ways to make people's lives better via the Department for International Development, for example. So they were funding... Um, midwife training and they were funding teacher training and so we went to film that because there were some positive stories coming out of a very miserable place um, and that was the agenda and and why was that our agenda because our audience is on us is watching tv at a certain time of the day they are skewed towards more female which the assumption being i'm not sure this it will hold true in the future but the assumption being that that's more of an emotional attachment rather than a a what's the word I'm looking for a sort of meta attachment to stories and you know a geopolitical thing which is, seems 
has been assumed as being more male. These are not things I necessarily subscribe to, but that was the thinking of the editorial at the time. That was what I'm going out to do. So that all feeds back. You know, this sounds like a lot of stuff, right? I'm talking about but that all feeds back. That's all in the at the back of my mind when I'm talking about what I've just seen. That's such a huge amount of cognitive process. It becomes automatic through practice. It's, it's as simple as that. It's, it's hours of doing it and learning on the job. And then that just translates into those definitive choices of words. Well, it's not definitive though, is it? That's the, that's the thing. There's Go no on. right and wrong. It's back to my view about grey areas. Okay. It's, and it would be different every time. You could ask me to tell the same story ten times and I would tell it in a different way ten times. Yeah. But no, no way it would be wrong. It would just be a different way of doing it. That, and I'm, I'm totally at ease with that. One of the biggest problems I think people, I, I think I see with people trying to tell a story to others when maybe not having a script is they try and rehearse a script. They try and write a script and memorise a script and deliver it like it's a stage play and like it's someone else's words that you have to stick to religiously. If it's your words, you can do what the hell you like with them. You can tell it differently every time. You see it so often that people have a script and they, they forget the script and they try and get back to the script and they mess it up and they panic and it all just comes collapsing, it comes crashing down. And I, I know that because I've done it. When I was doing news programmes, so that some of the biggest audiences I have I had in the millions. But you're not thinking about millions of people. Like, are just, you thinking about the words you choose? No, you're thinking about the audience you want. Actually, you're okay. thinking about who... Now, you could never know who the audience really is for a TV programme when they're in the... when they're anything above the thousands, I suppose. You can never know each person. What you're doing is assuming that they're watching you because the message you deliver appeals to them or the way you tell the story appeals to them. From the delivery point of view, the editorial, the, the newsroom, I suppose, we have in mind the kind of audience we're after. Now, some places will boil that audience down to an individual. Now, rightly or wrongly, uh, GMTV used to have a target audience that they would call Tracy Tower Block, okay? And they would use that to help visualise who they're talking to. It, it sounds, these days woefully patronising to say that but who they meant by Tracy Tower Block was our audience is female by and large it's mums it's people who are not wealthy they may be lower middle class or you know C2DE to use the, the old fashioned way of grading people's social class um, it's age 20s so you take all those factors into account, they came up with someone called Tracy Towerblock, which I always thought was comical because it was kind of offensive. But you can see why they did it. Because yeah. it, if, you, if you're talking to that individual, you're hitting all these other groups. And they're the groups you want. And in the case of GMTV, as it was, those are the groups that the advertising is targeted towards. A lot of people... Isn't there that thing about people who are good on radio the, the listener often says you feel like they're just talking to me well that, I was about to come on to that point you're not talking to millions of people you're talking to one person no one in the audience is sitting there thinking I'm one of millions <laughs> they're sitting there thinking you're talking to me that's, that's the crux of delivering a message to an audience 
you're not really talking to an audience. I said this the other, the other day to someone. You're talking to individuals. No, n people do not listen in the same way as the person next to them. Now, a lot, of, a lot of things, a joke might appeal to a lot of people and they all laugh. You very rarely get everyone laughing in the same way at the same joke. Even, even when they've gone to a comedy show, people react in different ways. They are all individual and storytelling is about, or vo vocal storytelling is about doing it in a way that makes that person feel that you're only talking to them. So when I was talking to a camera, one of the first lessons I learned was never sit there thinking there's millions of people looking at me through that lens. I mean, that would have been a lovely thing, but uh, unfortunately never quite reached those highs. You, you're imagining one person. I used, to, I used to sometimes imagine it was my mum standing behind the camera. So I'd just be talking to my mum or a mate down the pub, depending on the story. Or if it's a serious story, I'm talking to someone who might be a neighbour in Grenfell Tower or... You, 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 but you have one person in mind um, and it comes back to that initial point of, of empathy that's how you deliver an empathetic message because you're doing it one to one I think that's, that was always the approach now, there's no perfect, there's no black and white here it's, it's changeable it's different every time but that's the aim really and that's the, I think that's the aim of a, of a good orator it's really good um, three final things. Sure. What was your favourite subject at school? My favourite subject at school was maths, not because I was any good at it, but, be but because she was my favourite teacher. That's my next one. Yeah. Favourite teacher and why? My favourite teacher was Miss Evans, who was my maths teacher. I got a B at GCSE maths. I'm, I don't do anything mathematic now. I did, probably didn't since. I wish I had with hindsight because I think the, the STEM subjects are hugely important, especially important for, for girls um, because there aren't enough of them doing it. Um, but my, yeah, so my math teacher, yeah, math teacher is a woman. She, I don't really know much about her background. I think she was single. She was middle-aged. What made her a good teacher, great. though? She was a laugh. Right. And so this, again, f helped shape me, I suppose, as a communicator. There was light and shade. You, you, you could have a laugh with her but you knew when she was being serious because you, you got the contrast she was just serious all the time it just becomes it just it loses impact but if she could enjoy your company she did she enjoyed teaching she would have a laugh with us and then when she said look right down to work now you knew she meant it and therefore we did it because we took her seriously she told me off she made me sit on the floor to do work she moved me but all the time, even though I was probably a bit cheeky, I could tell she liked me. And I liked her as a result, and she got the best out of me. So Miss Evans, I'd love to know what she's doing now. Uh, Fiona Evans, her name was. Um, and also my media studies teacher, because I was doing a subject that actually helped get me into what I'm doing now. Yeah. And he was passionate too. I think the, the, essential, the essentials of anyone doing any job well is caring about it, being passionate about it. Knowing what you know now, give one piece of advice to your teachers. To my teachers? To your teachers that taught you. Hmm. I think one of the biggest problems for a lot of teachers is they are constrained by the syllabus. They're constrained by SATs and having to teach certain things. And 
I failed one of my A-levels because it was a history A-level set by a Welsh board. And it was a ridiculous um, syllabus. It was the English Civil War and it was the rise of fascism in the 20th century. Now, really, one of those topics would have been enough to, to justify an A-level in it. The teachers struggled with that. It was just huge, broad subjects, ridiculously high marking standards. And I'm, I'm saying that because these were two teachers who actually loved history. And I'm still in touch with one of them now, even though I failed his subject. <laughs> um, because he was a good guy. Dr. Erasmus, Dr. Tim Erasmus, if he's listening, if he ever, if he ever listens to this, was a good guy who the syllabus let down. And I think if he'd been given a bit more freer reign to teach history that he cared about, or history in general, um, it would have been much more fun. I'd have got been much more inspired. I think I think there should be room for teachers to go off piece a little bit, and and to show what their passion is about. If they do that, then they will inspire. They inspire the minds of kids. Matt Barbette. It was good, yeah? Really good. I enjoyed that. Um, I think it's just... I just love that he just puts all the emphasis on listening and empathy. Absolutely. You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. A number one priority for any school should be to nurture an environment of empathy. And okay. Listening is a big part of that. And Oracy can literally give you the tools to create an environment and allow students to have empathy, i.e. gain perspective of other people, put themselves in other people's shoes. Um, really good. So, Amy, you have a quote for us. Yeah, this week's quote comes from XP School, which is a pioneering school in Doncaster. It's a secondary school. They only do project-based learning, so no specialised teachers I guess they're specialised but the children aren't doing the subjects by themselves they're all doing them kind of cross-curricular and through projects um, and this is a quote that came from there emotion seems key to what's happening here asked to talk about their school Jack and Emily are effusive if I went to a school that was normal I would get the feeling when I walked in that I was in school but here I don't get the feeling it's a school says Emily I think it's like a house Jack adds and Emily nods the students and teachers are really close, like our second family. It's good, eh? It's nice. So I think that speaks... Because initially you might think, what's that got to do with Oracy? But I think that's got to do with Oracy because it's about the environment in which you set up for talk. Um, and there's so many implicit expectations that a school has mm -hmm. for students, for staff, for parents... And that will all go into and affect how you can set up talk and listening in your classroom. Yeah, and I think it takes a while to set up that safe space for talk in your classroom. But I think once it's there, everything becomes easier and better. And I think the talk becomes richer straight away. As soon as those children feel comfortable to open up and take risks with their oracy, it makes a huge difference. Absolutely. Um, so I had a, a very quick recommendation which was for, I've, I've done another one of these, but this is a different episode. So it's the Word of Mouth podcast. It's a BBC Radio 4 thing. So you can get that on BBC iPlayer or they have a new app called BBC Sounds. And this particular episode, Michael Rosen, who is the uh, presenter, he talks to the authors of a book called The Talking Revolution, 
and that's all about how we can improve our dialogue nationally and globally. So uh, they talk a lot about some of the things that Matt was talking about in the interview about nobody's actually listening. Everyone's just going around output, output, output of data, talking to win. Yeah. Nobody's actually listening to one another. So a big part of actually improving the dialogue, having a better conversation, is listening. So it kind of links with the interview. Great Oracy Exhibition. Great Oracy Exhibition. We realised we have told you loads about it, asked and begged people to come, but haven't told you how you could even buy a ticket. Yeah, so Great Oracy Exhibition is happening at School 21 here in Stratford. Um, it's on the 28th of March, which is a Thursday. It's 9.30 till 3.30, so it's during school day. And how you can get tickets is either through our school website, so school21.com, I think it is, or .org, whatever it is, you'll find it. Google it. Uh, yeah, Google <laughs> it. And um, the Voice 21 website will also have a link to tickets as well. Yeah. So Easy. get your tickets, come no down. No excuses. No excuses. <laughs> All right, cool. Bye, Amy. Bye.